before we turn to the topic today, I just I want to speak just briefly about the Chaldeans. A great number of the Chaldean Catholics in Iraq are in very dire straits, and I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that. Besides prayer and sacrifice, everybody that can needs to give alms. I'll read an excerpt from St. Thomas Aquinas, great doctor of the church, which briefly explains the church's teaching there. Quote, As love of our neighbor is a matter of precept, whatever is a necessary condition to the love of our neighbor is a matter of precept also. Now the love of our neighbor requires that not only should we be our neighbor's well-wishers, but also his well-doers. According to 1 John 3.18, let us not love in word nor in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In order to be a person's well-wisher and well-doer, we ought to succor his needs. This is done by almsgiving. Therefore, almsgiving is a matter of precept. On the part of the giver, it must be known that he should give of his surplus according to Luke 11.41, that which remains, give alms. Since it is not possible for one individual to relieve the needs of all, we are not bound to relieve all who are in need, but only those who could not be succored if we did not succor them. For in such cases, the words of the doctor of Church St. Ambrose apply. Feed him that dies of hunger. If thou hast not fed him, thou hast slain him. Accordingly, we are bound to give alms of our surplus, as also to give alms to one whose need is extreme. Close quote, St. Thomas. So, it's an easy website to remember, but it's a website sponsored by the Chaldean Catholic Eparchy of the USA. That's like an Eastern Diocese. So the, 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 the Chaldean Catholic Eparchy of the USA has a website called helpiraq.org. It's in the bulletin, but helpiraq.org. And they've got Chaldeans over here underwriting things, so 100% of the alms that you'd give to, would go directly to helping Iraqi Christians. There's also a donation link there for Medical Emergency Fund for Christian Iraqis. So the website has plenty of information. It has a message from Cardinal Sacco. He's the, he's the cardinal and he's the, the, the Catholic patriarch of the Chaldeans. And it also has from Bishop Francis, who's the, the bishop of the St. Thomas the Apostle Chaldean Eparchy in the U.S. And regarding the evil and the genocide in Mosul. So let us not forget them. Our country is probably going to forget them, but we Catholics better not forgive them. Our turn's coming. Okay. Let's start this morning by spending a few minutes reviewing some aspects of the liturgy in order to be, give everyone some idea what Pope Saint Pius X actually meant when he said, quote, the active participation of the faithful in the sacred mysteries and in the public and solemn prayer of the church is the first and indispensable source of the Christian spirit. Close quote. So this morning we're going to rely heavily on the teaching of the great and incorrupt Benedictine, Blessed Don, Columbia Marmion, and as usual, I'm going to cut and paste and edit quotes for the sake of time. Blessed Don Marmion, quote, The church has received from our Lord the power of sanctifying souls. We sanctify ourselves according to the measure in which we allow ourselves to be taught and guided by the church. It is especially by the liturgy that the church brings up the souls of her children in order to make them like unto Jesus. Close quote. Now, the blessing continues with an important practical point. It's a long quote. I'll just summarize it right at the end. Don Marmion, quote, If we let ourselves be guided by the liturgy, we shall infallibly come to know the mysteries of Jesus 
and above all, enter into the thoughts and feelings of his divine heart. Why is this? The church, knowing the secret of her bridegroom, takes from the gospel the pages which best place each of his mysteries in relief. Then with perfect art, she illustrates them with passages of the Psalms, prophecies, the epistles of St. Paul and other apostles, and quotations from the fathers of the church. She thus places the teachings of the divine master, the details of his life, and the substance of his mysteries in a clearer and fuller light. At the same time, by the choice of the readings from the Holy Scriptures and sacred authors, by the aspirations that she suggests to us, by her symbolism and ritual, she places our souls in the attitude demanded by the meaning of these mysteries. She fosters in our hearts the requisite dispositions in order that we may assimilate the spiritual fruit of each mystery in the greatest measure possible. Close quote. So what is the blessed saying? That will penetrate into the mysteries of our Lord if we allow the readings and the riches of liturgy to guide us. Now, Blessed Don Marmion points out that the different mysteries of our Lord's life each have different spiritual fruits. Quote, Each mystery is a fresh manifestation of Christ for us. Each has its own special beauty, its particular splendor, as likewise its own grace. The grace that flows for us from the Feast of Nativity has not the same character as that which the celebration of the Passion brings us. Close quote. So each mystery has not only its own special beauty, but it also has its own special grace that's attached to it. Blessed Don Marmion. The fathers of the church speak of what they call the virtue and signification of the mystery which is being celebrated. Some there are who see nothing in the celebration of Christ's mysteries beyond the perfection of the ceremonies, the beauty of the music and liturgical ornaments, the harmony of the ritual. There's all this, and that is excellent. These outward elements have their use, but we must not stop exclusively at them. They are but the fringe of Christ's garment. The virtue of the mysteries of Jesus is above all interior, and it is this virtue that we must seek before all. It is said of Jesus that when he was visibly present upon earth, virtue went out from him and healed all. Christ Jesus is ever the same. If with faith we contemplate his mysteries in the liturgy the church sets before us, the grace he merited for us when he lived those mysteries is produced within us. For example, each Christmas worthily celebrated is for the soul like a new birth to divine life. Upon Calvary, we die to sin with Christ. Jesus gives us the grace to detest more deeply all that offends him. Following Christ Jesus in this manner, in all his mysteries, uniting ourselves to him, we share little by little, but surely, and each time more fully and deeply, in his divinity and his divine life. According to the beautiful words of St. Augustine, that which was formerly brought to pass in a divine reality is spiritually received in fervent souls by the repeated celebration of these mysteries. It is then true to say that when we contemplate Christ's different mysteries, we do so not only in order to recall events wrought for our salvation and to glorify God for them by our praise and thanksgiving. It is not only to see how Jesus lived and strive to imitate him, but furthermore, that our souls may participate in each special state of the sacred humanity and draw forth from it the proper grace that the divine master attached to it in meriting this grace as head of the church for his mystical body. Close quote. 
If by faith we contemplate our Lord's mysteries in the liturgy the church sets before us, the grace that he merited for us when he lived those mysteries is produced within us. And our souls will then draw forth from each mystery the proper grace that the Lord has attached to it in meriting this grace as the head of the church for his mystical body. So we want to picture the liturgical year as a sort of spiral staircase going through time. If we're following our Lord through the course of the year, allowing ourselves to be guided by the readings and ritual liturgy, then every year when we get back to that same point on the calendar, we should penetrate deeper and deeper into the mystery and draw more fruits from it, getting more of the spiritual fruits that he's attached to it. So the 13th Sunday after Pentecost this year, 13th Sunday after Pentecost next year, the next year, and the next year, so forth. So each year we relive, as it were, the life of Christ from Advent and the preparation of his first coming all the way to last Sunday after Pentecost and the preparation for his second coming. St. Andrew's Missal points this out in another way. Throughout the liturgical cycle, every year on the altar, a new Palestine, Christ lives his whole life anew in the same order in which it unfolded itself of old. This time, however, it is we ourselves in union with our Lord who enter into the mysteries of his life. Close quote. So the liturgical year has two divisions that are roughly six months each. From the beginning of the liturgical year, which is the first Sunday in Advent, all the way to the Sunday of Pentecost, we have the mysteries of the life of Christ. That's the first six months. The second six months from Pentecost to the last Sunday after Pentecost, we have as it were, the mysteries of the life of Christ's mystical body. You see more saints there on the calendar, but certainly we're, we're to draw things about the, the life of the church at that. Now, in that light, let's consider the scriptural passages found in today's Mass. But first, by way of background, we're going to take a high lope through some scriptural history that everybody should know, but it's good to review just in case. So this part is a review to appreciate the readings. I'm going to give a lot more detail than I'm going to talk about when we get to the readings but it's for you. You can draw more things certainly out of, out of the readings than just based on this, if you haven't already. A little more than four centuries after the flood, God made a covenant with Abraham and told him, among other things, that quote, "I'll make of thee a great nation, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Close quote. Then He called Abraham to go to Palestine, the Promised Land. So Abraham takes his household and flocks and ends up in the promised land. Time passes. His grandson Jacob, also known as Israel, has 12 sons. There's a terrible famine. These men, along with their families, all leave the Holy Land, and they move down into Egypt. Over the generations, there, there are several things happen. These 12 families grow up into 12 tribes. That's 12 tribes of Israel, and they become slaves. Moses is sent by God, delivers people from slavery to Pharaoh, Egypt struck with the ten plagues. They have the Passover. And the Passover, remember, every father slaughters a lamb. They mark the lintels of the doors with, with the, the blood of that lamb. They eat the whole lamb. And in so doing, they're protecting their firstborn sons from death. They flee through the Red Sea and pass into the Sinai. Well, that's called the Exodus. And uh, they, they get to Mount Sinai, and the law gets handed down. That's 430 years after the time Abraham entered into the covenant with God. To, to the, get the law handed down on, on Sinai. So Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the law. Great doctor of the church, St. Hilary of Poitiers, uh, explains the details because we're all familiar with it, all the rumbling and thundering and, and sounds of trumpets and all this stuff going on when he's up there. St. Hilary of Poitiers. 
These burning torches, these dazzling fires, these rumbling thunders, this terror that accompanies the entire coming of the Lord all manifest the presence of the angelic ministers setting down the law through the hand of a mediator. The law was promulgated by the angels. Close quote. Now, while all this is going on, the people rise up and build a golden calf. That's an idol of one of the Egyptian uh, pagan gods. It's a pagan, it's a bull god called Apis. And then they worship it. Suddenly, the whole situation changes. Moses calls for men to stand for the Lord. The men of the tribe of Levi respond, and they kill the idolaters. And from that point on, only men from that tribe, and that tribe only, will be the priests. No longer will the fathers be the priests to offer up the sacrifices. As a consequence of their sins and transgressions, after this point in the Exodus, there are a whole slew of religious laws, ritual regulations that end up becoming imposed on the people of Israel. And that's called the law. Okay, so more time passed till we get to just this side of 1000 BC. Here comes King Solomon. We all know who he is. His father's King David. His mother's Bathsheba. By a special gift from God, he's the wisest man that lived. About 961 BC or so, he builds the first temple in his royal city of Jerusalem. Unfortunately, by the end of his 40 year rule, King Solomon had become a corrupt tyrant. So after his death, his son becomes king, and the northern tribes of Israel sent a representative to ask him, will you go a little easier on us than your dad? Now, the elders have experienced counsel to go easy on the people, but his son's insecure and inexperienced, and he ignores their advice. He tells the people that he's going to lay even heavier yoke on them than Solomon had. It's a, got a, there's a predictable result. It's disaster. The northern tribes pull away, and while the smoke clears, the kingdom is broken into two. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom keeps name. It's the kingdom of Israel. It's made up of the ten northern tribes. The southern kingdom ends up being made up of just two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, where it gets its name, the, the, the kingdom of Judah. Okay. The, the capital city of the kingdom of Israel ends up in a town called Samaria, capital city of, of Judah, of the kingdom of Judah is Jerusalem. What really gets the, the northern kingdom off to a rocky start, religiously speaking, is its very first king decided to make sure his people, the ten northern tribes, the ten tribes of Israel, wouldn't go up to Jerusalem to pay at the temple and offer sacrifice there, because he's worried he's got political calculations. Hey, if they go up to Jerusalem, then they're going to fall and end, up, and end up submitting to the king of Judah. So he has two golden calves built and trots them out before the people and says, you've gone to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods. I mean, where have we heard this one before? Behold your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And, uh, and so then he points a new priesthood made of men who are not from the tribe of Levi, but that's kind of a no-brainer because why are the tribe of Levi priests in the first place? Because they were killing the original guys that worshipped the golden calves. He sets up a golden calf on the north end of his kingdom with, with, you know, with, to go up there and worship, and one down on the south. So they got two shrines. you got apostasy. That's the northern kingdom. So the kingdom of Israel lurches from one wicked king to another. It's, it's sort of like the White House. And God keeps sending prophets to call them back to the covenant, but they remain rebellious and just won't quit sinning. So he finally has enough. In 722 B.C., he sends in the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom. Now the Assyrians come from their capital cities named Nineveh. That's Mosul. The Chaldean Catholics are the direct descendants of the conquerors of the kingdom of Israel. In order to avoid insurgencies and rebellion, the Syrians carry away thousands of Israelites and resettle them, scatter them out across the empire. And that's a blow from which the nation of Israel never recovered. 
The ten tribes that were taken off to Syria become known as the Ten Lost Tribes. You've all heard of that. They've never again emerged in world history. At the same time, they carry away the ten tribes. The Syrians locate five pagan tribes in the land surrounding the city of Samaria. These pagans intermarry with the remaining Israelites, and the resulting people are known as the Samaritans. Parenthetically, there still are some Samaritans that live in the West Bank, several hundred. In the early years, the Samaritans apparently had quite a hodgepodge of religious practices taken from the Israelites and the pagan ancestors. But over time, the religious practices become closer and closer to those of the Jews in the southern kingdom. Unlike the Jews, however, they believed they could sacrifice to God outside the temple in Jerusalem. That's obviously a big bone of contention with the Jews, and the combination of their religious differences and their partial pagan ancestry makes them object of contempt by the ordinary Jews. And history seems to say that it should suggest that the feeling is kind of mutual. Anyway, then in the fullness of time, God becomes man. He fulfills the law perfectly. And in the process, really annoys the powers of be, both by his actions and teachings. He annoys them so much, they plot his demise at the hands of Pontius Pilate. So we see, as it were, this great apostasy of the Jewish people who had had the true religion and had been awaiting the Messiah, but then as a collective entity, reject him when he shows up. Some 40 years after the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of our Lord, the temple gets totally razed to the ground, destroyed by the Roman legions that are Vespasian and Titus. Here's an important point. The old covenant was between God and the descendants of Abraham. But they just killed God. End of old covenant. Why is that? It's easy to say if when we make the comparison, marriage is a covenant. How do you get out of marriage? There's only one way. Someone dies. It's till death do us part. And that's what it means. So God died. That meant a permanent end of the old covenant. Over. And now the relationship between God and man is governed by the new and everlasting covenant in his blood. It's no longer something that's one tribe. It's for everybody or one nation, rather, because you have two tribes. Over time, we see this absolutely amazing conversion of the various pagan nations who, rejecting their idolatry and moral depravity, turn to embrace the Lord, enter into his new and everlasting covenant, and so doing, become spiritual sons of Abraham and heirs of his promise, which we hear every day in the canon of the Mass. We talk about Abraham, our father. But unless you're a Hebrew Catholic, he's not literally your father genetically, is he? But he is literally a father spiritually. We're told at the end of the world, the Gentile peoples will themselves reject the one true faith and turn back to their idols and mortal depravity. And finally, during the reign of Antichrist, by the force of the preaching miracles of the prophet Elias or Elijah, same guy, many of the Jews will enter into the new and everlasting covenant by becoming Catholics. Okay, that's sort of a panoramic sweep from the, just after the flood dried up to the end of the world of, of scriptural history, but it's all by way of general background, and now we're going to use some of that because we're going to turn to today's readings. We'll start with some comments taken largely from the St. Andrew's Missal. If you're wondering and you don't have a Missal, that's the one to buy if you want to just own one book to come to a much deeper understanding of the liturgy. The one in print is the 45 edition, so there's some differences, especially in Holy Week, but that doesn't detract at all from its value in understanding the liturgy. If you just want one book, there's nothing like it. It's brilliant. I'll weave in other comments, especially some made by Jacob Michael, so this is a patchwork quote. We'll start with the words 
from this morning's introit. Now, that's the, after the prayers of the foot to altar, when the priest goes up and gets to the missal, that's the first thing the priest says when he arrives at the missal. And I'll just read the introit, and then we'll talk briefly about it. I'm just going to make some reflections on some of the reading. Have regard, O Lord, to thy covenant, and forsake not to the end the souls of the poor. Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause, and forget not the voices of them that seek thee. O God, why hast thou cast us off unto the end? Why is thy wrath enkindled against the sheep of thy pasture? The great doctor of the church, the Venerable Bede, comments on this psalm. It's Psalm 73. The synagogue speaks throughout the psalm, stating that the impenitent heart of certain Jews had provoked God's chastisement. Yet it prophesies that some of them shall be converted at the end of the world. Close quote. So it's a psalm referring to divine judgment on the Jews, but also pointing towards a conversion at the end when they finally quit obstinately resisting grace. In the collect, we ask God for the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity so that we love what he loves. For it's by that faith manifested in good works and trust in God that souls that have been covered with the leprosy of sin are cured, as we're reminded of in today's gospel. The epistle is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. St. Paul shows its faith in Christ which gives eternal life and not the law of Sinai. To prove this, he points out that it is to Abraham and his descendants that the promises have been given. What promises? We just heard about them. The promise to bless all the nations of the world through the seed of Abraham. St. Paul points out that the seed is Christ. And now that the seed has come, now that Christ has come, the promises made to Abraham can begin to be fulfilled. They couldn't be fulfilled through the rituals of the law, what St. Paul refers to as works of the law. St. Paul reminds us that the law of Moses was added 430 years after the covenant was sworn with Abraham, and thus it could not possibly make void the promises that God himself made to Abraham. The promises made to Abraham cannot be fulfilled through later temporary provisions that were imposed because of Israel's transgressions during the Exodus. Those laws were a corrective measure put in place temporarily, quote, until the seed should come, close quote. So they're to be fulfilled rather through Christ, who inaugurates a new covenant. The old law had no other purpose but to lead men to Christ. Now think of that. The old law had no other purpose but to lead men to Christ. And yet, in today's gospel, we see the spectacle of nine men miraculously healed by Christ. Nine Jews. Nine men who are living under the old covenant. And they missed the whole point. In the gospel for the last two weeks, we've seen righteous Samaritans. Last week, of course, we had the gospel with the good Samaritan. So in the gospel the last two weeks, we've seen righteous Samaritans and at best, indifferent Jews. So we've been seeing this drama of the members of the one true church being indifferent to Christ and outsiders responding with faith and good works. Obviously, in the first instance, it applies to the Jewish people. But remember that at this time of the liturgical year, between Pentecost, which places the birthday of the church before us, and the last Sunday of Pentecost, which places Judgment Day before us, in this time of the year, the liturgy has turned towards the life of the mystical body of Christ, the life of his church. And in that light, it ought to give each one of us pause when we think about this gospel. As a member of the one true church, each one of us ought to stop and check his heart. Is my religion 
largely a question of forms? Is my religion largely a question of external practices, a checklist that I can just run down? Let's be clear. Forms and external practices are important and very important. After all, a wedding ring is a beautiful and important external practice. But its principal beauty and significance comes from the fact that it's an external expression of an inner reality, the inner reality of that love and reverence that the one wearing it has for their spouse, huh? So each one of us ought to ask themselves, is my religion largely a question of forms and external practices, a checklist I can run down? Or is it an affair of the heart in which the forms and external practices are external signs of an inner reality, external signs that in my heart Christ is ruling, that I'm totally committed to him, that I'm totally committed to the truth, no matter how painful it may be for me at the present, that I'm striving to submit myself as perfectly and lovingly as possible to truth incarnate. Each one of us should ask themselves, have I been guilty of a sort of elitist attitude? Then since I'm a member of the person that has the true religion, true mass, or have I forgot that certainly the traditional mass is only a means to an end? Have I been guilty of confusing means with ends? The traditional liturgy, the beauty, chant, polyphony, all those kind of things are very important. But at the end of the day, they're only means. They're only means. The end is union with Christ. In other words, the end is holiness. And holiness is directly proportional to my humility and my charity. Am I missing the whole point? Do I believe, do I really believe that union with Christ is the point of our holy religion? If I believe that, then is it obvious in my thoughts and in my words and in my deeds? In today's gospel, we see a foreshadowing of the way in which our Lord will bring about the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Salvation will come to all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, through obedience to our Lord's commands and union with him. But once we've been healed, once we've been freed from the leprosy of sin and vice, we also have to remember to imitate the Samaritan leper by returning to our Lord to give thanks. And in St. Luke's text, the word he used in Greek is Euchariston. We give thanks for our salvation, for being made heirs to the promises made by God to Abraham by coming here to the holy sacrifice of the Mass and offering to God an acceptable sacrifice. The communion verse refers to this sacrifice of thanksgiving, this Euchariston, when we hear, quote, Thou hast given us the Lord bread from heaven, having in it all that is delicious and the sweetness of every taste. Close quote. Today, 
As we ponder the lessons contained in this liturgy, each one of us needs to ask himself, is my religion largely a question of forms and external practices, a checklist I run down? Or is it an affair of the heart? Do I believe, really believe, that union with Christ is the point of our holy religion? And if I believe that, is that obvious in my thoughts and in my words and in my deeds?